Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, enhance your mental and physical well-being, and encourage community. Today we're continuing with our informative and fun series on human sexuality. For those of you just joining us, you might want to listen on our archives or purchase some of the books of previous interviews. Dr. Janet Hardy on The Ethical Slut, Dr. Stella Resnick on The Heart of Desire, and Dr. Ogi Ogas on A Billion Wicked Thoughts. You might remember that interview. He informed us of what our nation is looking at in pornography. Other interesting past interviews on human sexuality have included Margot St. James, the founder of the Prostitutes Union, Coyote, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics, and Norma Jean Almodover. You might remember her, president of Coyote, who told us of how, as an L.A. policewoman, she was forced to give oral sex to so many fellow cops that she decided to start charging and thus became a hooker, a madam, and eventually president of the Prostitutes Union. Now to our present program. In human sexual activity, we talk about such things as achieving an erection, maintaining an erection, maintaining or performing. We talk about a woman reaching an orgasm. Men achieve, attain, maintain, and perform for the woman who then reaches for her orgasm. We've taken behavior which can be amazingly enjoyable and satisfying and turned it into what sounds like an anxiety-producing job. Can you picture a man doing all he can to achieve, attain, and maintain an erection in order to perform? Can you imagine a woman then reaching for her orgasm? How high does she reach? Does she use a special sex ladder or perhaps a stool? Do some women stand on their tippy toes in order to climax? Today, our guest, my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Lonnie Barback, is going to answer these questions and also teach us how to increase our enjoyment and pleasure while removing blocks and obstacles that we ourselves have created. Dr. Lonnie Barback is our country's foremost expert on human sexuality. Her books include the breakthrough bestseller, For Yourself. Over 30 years ago, this book opened the closed door to female masturbation. It was voted number one self-help book by 5,000 psychologists. Lonnie's books and articles are legendary, and they've sold over 4 million copies worldwide. Lonnie's book, Going the Distance, written with her long-term partner, Dr. David Geisinger, is a must-read for all couples. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Lonnie. Thank you, Richard, and for your perfect introduction. <laughs> it's sex terrible. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> How to make sex terrible. Just <laughs> well, reaching and striving and And maintaining and, and maintaining and, 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 and performing. Wow. <laughs> Folks, if time permits, we're going to be talking about the development of the penis and the clitoris, vaginal exploration, masturbation, sexual intercourse, removing blocks to pleasure, and more. But first... I know my listeners also want to know, how much is a normal amount of sex for a particular age? Is there a normal amount, Lonnie? There's a normal amount for what feels good for you. There is no normal. 
when it comes to sexuality. You know, I mean, the thing about sexuality is there's an incredible range. What people like to do, how often they like to do it, where they like to do it, you know, varies from person to person. The only thing that's important is that you find a partner with whom you have a match, where the frequency that you have matches your partner's needs, where what you like to do sexually matches what your partner likes to do, and it's when you have a mismatch that you end up in trouble sexually that are things that you need to work out. But in terms of the numbers, people listening, they don't have to think about going to Google and looking it up and saying, we need to be making love this many times a week or a month or how many times a year and find some chart. That's not what it's about. It's, it's about a match. Yeah, it, it's actually opposite of that. Because as soon as you're trying to meet somebody else's needs or somebody else's desires or somebody else's, you're getting away from your own. And the whole object of sexuality is to be in your body, enjoying your pleasure, intimately connected with someone else and the one person that you're with at that time. So it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. They're not in the room with you. So either there's a certain amount of luck involved or... It's important that people find out, let's say, before marriage, because it could be that one person is in one area, like maybe even likes what's considered a lot, and the other one for them is a lot is a little, sort of like the famous Woody Allen and Diane Keaton uh, split screen, right? Right, exactly. Where she's saying he always wants sex, and and he's saying she never wants sex. Yeah, we only have it three times a week. Exactly. Yeah, so, <laughs> they both have the same right. number, but the reasoning is different. So for the listeners, yeah. there's no number they have to look for. It's compatibility to look for. Right, and that compatibility, you know, if, if you, you need to be compatible in a lot of areas to have a good relationship. You want to have similar values, right? You might want to come from a similar religion or background. That might make your relationship easier for you. You might want to both want children or not want children. You want to be compatible in a lot of areas. And sex is a really important one. So if, uh, if I see a couple who is having sexual issues, uh, the first thing I'll ask them is, how was your relationship in the beginning when you first started having sex? And if they've had sexual difficulties from the very beginning, then they probably haven't had, they just weren't so compatible sexually, or there were other issues involved. But, But if a couple starts out and sex was good, and they were really enjoying each other, then usually we can get back to that place again, because they once had it. But if they never had it, then it, it's difficult to, um, to fabricate chemistry. How do you fabricate chemistry? <laughs> it's kind of there or it's not there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are people, having are people having more or less, more sex, or less sex since the sexual the revolution? revolution? And the advent of and the, the pill. Let's put the two of them together. I have no idea. Nobody was taking, you know, that many statistics. We had the Kinsey statistics. Other people weren't asking people questions. Who knows how many people lied? when they were being asked questions. Uh, I uh, mean, but for me, it's like, I don't care. I don't care if people are having more sex or less sex. I just want to make sure if that people are happy with the amount of sex that they're having and with the quality of their sex. Because oftentimes it's the quality that's more important than the quantity. Sometimes people will come in and say, I need more sex, I want more sex. But actually, when their relationship gets better, and their sexual experience gets more satisfying, 
they noticed that the frequency wasn't as important as they thought it was when they first came in. What about pornography? What, about pornography? what kind of, what kind uh, of effect does uh, pornography, pornography have on sexuality? Just give me one second, Bonnie. Uh, We're having a technical problem here. I'm hearing an echo. I believe her computer might be on. Her computer might be on? They're saying your computer might be on in some way. Is your computer whatever on means? How else am I going to be talking to you if my computer's okay. not on? <laughs> I'm not hearing the echo now. That's probably coming from her. Yeah, I don't hear it anymore. Anyway, getting back to pornography. Yeah. Do we know what effect it's, it, it's having? Well, you know, I mean, it, it does have an effect on relationships. It can be both a positive effect or a negative effect, depending upon the people involved. Uh, for some people, both people involved enjoy pornography. They watch it together. It's part of their sexual stimulation. Some people use it as a way to say, oh, I really like this. Watch what these people are doing. It can be a, an aid in communication. It can be fun. For other people, sex gets, I mean, pornography gets in the way because they get so into what's happening in pornography, they're not so interested in their sexual relationship with their partner. So it interferes with their sexual relationship with their partner. You know, here's something where they don't have to be considered the other person and they get much more egocentric about their sex. So for those people, it has a negative impact. Some people have an idea about pornography uh, that is, you know, for women sometimes. I'm, I'm not as attractive as the women in, in porn and my husband... Uh, wouldn't be turned on by me if he's watching these women, he's not interested in me, and they take it as it's an either-or mm -hmm. kind of thing, mm -hmm. as opposed to it's something else that has a different level of satisfaction, as long as they're having a good and satisfying sexual relationship. But in a way, in a way watching, watching, we've got that we've echo, got that can echo. you hear it? You hear it? The delay. delay. We've got a problem. We've got a problem. Uh, every time yeah, I every speak, time Lonnie, I speak, I'm hearing Lonnie, myself I'm speak in, a, in, in an a, echo right an after echo. Uh, I speak. I speak. Any idea of anything that's over there? I think I'm you just stopped. I'm trying to start this off, and then I'm, I'm going to see if I can put a speaker on in a different way. I think you just stopped with the problem. Well, then I won't be able to hear you. I'm glad. That's oh, you good. can't? You can't hear yeah, me? Yeah, I, I can hear you as long as you speak up. Okay. You know, one of the questions that I get asked is, is pornography the taste of some people in a warehouse down in L.A., or is pornography what the public wants? And then people also say, is, is learning about sex from porn sort of like learning how to ride a horse by watching a professional cowboy or watching a professional baseball as a, a player as a way to play baseball? I mean, it's, it's a distorted view because these people are being hired specifically like the men for the size of their penis right? Or various other yeah. and, physical attributes. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with their feelings in the relationship. Yes. So, you know, and, and pornography can tend to go to more of the extreme. So they're kind of push the envelope because after you've seen people just having oral sex together, then what's the next thing that you're going to see? You know, you need something else visually because the relationship is absent. So you keep moving to more and more extreme things. And the, the way, the thing I'm interested in, in terms of the negative effect, is the effect it's having on kids who are, aren't having a sexual relationship. They, this is their introduction 
to sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they don't have the experience of what it's like to be involved with someone and having a sexual relationship, but they are uh, being stimulated by something that's visual. And and it, oftentimes what, what you see when you're young, you kind of get hooked on, you know, kind of it's very stimulating and you respond to it. And orgasm is a very um, powerful reinforcer. So you start getting connected to whatever the pornography you happened to tune in on. And that may limit some people in terms of their own exploration, their own ability to connect uh, sexually. And we don't know how that's going to play out no, yet. I know, no, Nancy Jo Sales has a book out called uh, American Girls. And she's saying that one of the things that's happening as a result of pornography is that young girls want to be considered hot, uh, that th their self-concept is all around being hot and being very doable, that the boys want to do them. It's not that the girls want the sex so much, but they want to be that desired. Mm -hmm. And that's actually always been true. One of the difficulties for young women all along has been having sex to please the guy. To not lose him in a relationship, you know, to have him find her desirable, to be attractive. And for young women, it wasn't uh, having sex for their own pleasure because they wanted to, because they were ready for it. And that's been an issue for young women for as long as I've been working in the field. And there's also the there's issue. And longer. There's an issue that, an issue uh, that uh, Peggy Orenstein. Peggy Orenstein uh, has brought up in her book, uh, Sex in Girls in America, about a change in the, the actual sexual activity where uh, the incidence of anal sex has gone from 16% in 1992 to now 40% of young girls have tried it in 2015. It's a dramatic increase in anal sex. And, and they're attributing that in part to pornography, not necessarily to women enjoying it, because in fact, one of the things that Egg Ornstein says is that the girls right. find it painful. They're not that all that crazy about it as a group. Right, and they're doing things that they feel the guy wants. And so they're, again, trying to do something that is gonna be make them accepted, that gives somebody else pleasure, and it's not about their own pleasure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. At the basis of it, it's really teaching young women not to be sexual until they are ready, not to have sex with somebody until they want it with that person, you know, and as opposed to pleasing that person to go into it for their pleasure as well. Yeah. So it's a joint arrangement. Yeah. One of the other things that Ornstein mentions, which leads me into the next topic I'd like you to talk about, is she says that across America, in high school sex education classes, Almost universally, they don't mention the clitoris. They simply mm -hmm. don't mention it at all. And give us some history on the development, which you talk about in your book, your, your wonderful book, uh, For Each Other, which I want to mention is somewhat of a sequel to your groundbreaking book that I mentioned earlier, For Yourself, For Each Other, or For Couples. And in your book, you talk about how the clitoris and the penis develop in the early stages. As same embryonic tissue. Yeah, please give us a little primer on that line. Yeah, and so what you find out is that the outer lips of the vagina 
are come out of the same tissue as the shaft of the penis and the clitoris comes out of the same tissue that the um, glands, the head of the penis in the male develops from. So we have sort of an equivalent, you assume, insensitivity. Insensitivity. So, insensitivity. Yeah. So that means the head of the penis and the head of the clitoris are equivalently sensitive. And for some women, you know, also the um, clitoris is not just on the outside of the body. The roots of the clitoris go into the interior, into the vaginal front vaginal wall. Sort of like a wishbone, isn't it? For a lot, yes. For a lot of women, stimulating that area just under, you know, up the pubic bone, but just above it uh, will be very arousing. For other women, that's not so arousing. For some women, stimulation of the head of the clitoris is very arousing. For some women, that's too intense. They are, they are more pleasured by a lighter stimulation. So there is no, there is no one way. And the things that sometimes um, are difficult for male partners is that, well, this worked for my last partner. What's wrong with you? I mean, I've just learned this. This is how women are supposed to work. But it, it, it really is getting in sync again with the individual that you're with. What kinds of things does she like? How does she like to be pleasured? Maybe she likes to start out with more subtle stimulation and then build up to something more intense. Maybe she likes to stay with more subtle stimulation. You just have to know what is most pleasurable for the partner you're with. That is another topic that you focus on quite a bit in your book, which is communication. You're opening the door for people to be able to talk openly about their sexual likes and dislikes. Talk some more about that, please. Well, how can you know? I mean, it's like, how would you know that you liked your partner? How's your partner like uh, her coffee? Black with cream and sugar? I mean, at some point, you're going to have to find out. You're going to watch her and see what she's drinking and learn from that. Or you're going to ask her, how do you want me to make your coffee? Maybe she wanted it black today, but tomorrow she's going to want it with cream and sugar. You know, it's asking that question. It's continuing a dialogue you know, talking about sex just as if it were a normal part of a relationship. I mean, somehow we take it and put it outside of that, but it is. It's a very important part of most relationships. When the sexual relationship is not going well, the relationship is often not going well. So you're, so you're, you're if I understand you, you're advocating completely open, open and normal conversation normal about, about touch me here, it feels good there, good I'd there. like you to do more of that, is that correct? Absolutely, but you have to figure out in that relationship, how does the partner feel about that? Do they want to talk about it during sex? Would they like information after they make love or at some other time, maybe when they're having a car ride uh, together and they just have the privacy of the two of them and a long drive and they can really talk about things? You know, a lot of sex right after because it becomes a kind of evaluation of how did the sex go. So you, you really want to be, you want to be communicative, but you don't want to be judgmental. That must be a very, very touchy for couples because I imagine when they're talking and communicating about what they like and what they don't like, you can get into you did a little too much of this or a little or in some way start to feel bad because there's it feels like a little criticism or I'm not good enough. Correct. Right. And so it becomes very important to be positive and say, I'd like more of this. I really like it when you do that. 
And so as opposed to I don't like it when you do this, it's more I'd really like it, you know, if you do more of this kind of a thing for me. You know, my, my nipples are very sensitive. I really like it when you stimulate them more, um, spend more time over here, you know. So it's it's about and it's, you know, also we have something in this culture, which is that the, the man was supposed to be born with sexual information and expertise. Like we know what to, to do. do. Right. You're supposed to know what to do. You're not supposed to ask. And you shouldn't get any information because you're supposed to know. You know so, and you can't ask because you're supposed to know. And she can't tell you because you're supposed to know. And so you get stuck in this. She's not, she can't tell you. You can't ask. And no information gets transmitted about an area that is totally personal and individual. So somehow or other, the man is supposed to know exactly what the woman wants in her coffee without ever having discussed the coffee whatsoever. It could be black, it could be a triple espresso, it could be cream in the coffee, no cream, sugar, whatever, without any information. That's what you're saying. No information except what he believes is, well, my last partner did, or maybe what he saw in some pornographic movie. Boris saw some pornographic movie. Because if he learned it that way, right? Because if they're that's not right. teaching it in high school, where else is he seeing it? So he thinks, well, maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Exactly. That's a bit scary. Mm-hmm. One of the things you also talk about in your book that seems so important to me was that in order for a person to be able to tell another person what they like, you talk mm-hmm. about how you have to explore yourself in order to find out what you yourself like. Yeah, for women, um, masturbation is the easiest way to learn to have orgasms. Women can learn about their own bodies. They can move at a pace that works for them. They can take as much time as they need. They don't have to be worried about pleasing somebody else. It has all of the attributes of a perfect environment. For her to figure out what's going on sexually for herself and it's a it's a great environment for men to learn how to control their uh, ejaculation so they, they learn how to stop they learn how to take their time how to but most men you know masturbate they do it as quickly as possible you know that's kind of what you do you don't want to get caught I mean you want anybody to walk in on you and so you men have learned how to have orgasms very quickly and then often need to learn how to slow that down. And masturbation is a good way to do that too. So what you're saying is contrasted with with some of my other authors who have talked about masturbation as making love to oneself, for the most part men are still getting themselves off, so to speak. They're just having the experience and done. They're not really making love to themselves. Right. And when people really are making love to themselves, it's a whole different experience. But most people don't do that. It's be, we've been taught that masturbation is shameful. It's not what you want to spend any time doing. You know, there's something wrong with you if you're doing it. For young women, it's like, what do you mean you have a sex drive and you're interested in having sex unless, if, if I'm not here? <laughs> the guy says, if I'm not here with you, you know, what do you mean you have a sex drive? You know, I mean, it's it really is important for um, people to own their own sexuality and to understand it and to explore it and to enjoy it. Can you in some way offer some guidance to women who are listening to this and have never done self-vaginal exploration? 
What do they do? Give us, give us some, some guidelines, some direction. Well, you know, first is to relax. So either take a nice bath or, you know, make sure that you're in a relaxed mood, that your cell phone is off, that your door is locked so you feel like you're safe and you're private and nobody's going to walk in on you and that you have some time to do this. And to have something that gets you into an, er in an erotic frame of mind. Because oftentimes for women, it's their partner that makes them feel turned on. If their partner's not there, then maybe fantasies about their partner, maybe other kinds of fantasies, maybe reading something that's erotic. When I started um, running my pre-orgasmic women's groups, one of the things that the women said, this was in the early 70s, women said that, um, you know, I, I don't feel that turned on by myself. And, you know, and I said, well, why don't you try to read something? And all of the stuff that was written they said, this stuff turns me off. This stuff is all written for men. And that was what encouraged me to start to write volumes of erotica written by women for women. Yes. So that women yes. would have something that would be arousing. So now there is also erotica that women can read to put themselves into the uh, a sexual mood to start getting more aroused. And then to follow their body, to just see what feels good and when it feels good to keep doing it. And if something starts not feeling so good, to change it. And it's it's just about experimenting and trying, you know, trying to see what it feels like if if they touch their breasts, what it's like if they feel they're um, behind their knees, uh, you know, their uh, vaginal area inside the vagina. They can put fingers or, you know, a, a vegetable, if that, you know, that they feel is something that they'd like to have inside because some women like inside something inside the vagina when they're masturbating as well as clitoral stimulation so it's just a matter of just spending time at it and seeing what you like in a previous interview Lonnie you told me that it wasn't that long ago that a very high percentage of women had never even really looked at their vagina uh -huh, right and I assume that's changed now over the years but now we're talking, we're going beyond looking to touching. And women need to, from what you're saying, they need to in some way be able to say that touching themselves and stimulating themselves and, and if you will, making love to themselves is okay. It's not a, well, that's not quote, the whole idea that, Well, the whole idea is not, even not so bad. It's like, I'm a sexual being. Sex is healthy. It's a, it's a really good part of a relationship. It's a positive part of who I am. And I can feel good about it and enjoy it and experience it in a way with my partner or by myself in a way that makes me feel good because I get to have this feeling. There's really a male-female difference here because I, I've read the most recent research and it appears that in the last 50 years or so since Kinsey when he reported, I don't know, 50-60% of the men if they were telling the truth masturbated, it went up to 80. The most recent report is that evidently 99% of males, if not higher, masturbate. But that's not true for females. That's correct. That's not true. I think it's gotten higher for women. And, you know, now women who've never had an orgasm is a much smaller population than when I first started doing, you know, sex therapy, where there were a lot more women who'd never had orgasms. You know, women are know more about masturbation. They've got more positive messages about sex in terms of being sexual. And I think that it, there definitely is a positive change in that direction. Um, I'm surprised that the percentage of 
man, that's, I, you know, I'm not sure I believe all of the early research. Uh-huh. I'm not sure how honest people were. You know, you weren't supposed to masturbate. It really, you know, it, it just made you blind and caused hair on the palm of your hands and all sorts of things. And I don't think people would admit, that was one of the things that people were least likely to admit to doing. Masturbating. Yeah. yeah. And, and most people, the, the largest majority of people are doing it. Tell us some, please. In terms of female masturbation. By the way, it's a perfectly, it's a really good way for adolescents to learn about their body in a safe way, um, in a way that they get to focus on themselves and especially for young women to learn about their bodies and to feel good about themselves. So it, it serves a lot of purposes. It's the re- We have it for a reason. Certainly two of the mm-hmm. reasons that are obvious is one is that the female can have a pleasurable lovemaking experience with herself. The second being, she can then, as per your communication counsel, tell the male or female, if she has a female partner, what feels good because she then knows what feels good because she has discovered what feels good by herself. Right? They don't have to play a guessing game. Yeah, and I think sometimes in lesbian relationships, because they're two women, you expect one is going to know about the other one because uh, they have the same genitals. Yeah. But it doesn't really matter because we're each so unique. Mm-hmm. So it's being able to accept our uniqueness that is crucial to really enjoying our sexuality. Women listening, Women to, this, listening to this, they're going to. Some of them are going to do what you're suggesting if they haven't already they done, haven't it. done it. Please tell them Please some tell about, them the about the G spot and about the efficacy of efficacy the Kegel of the exercise. Kegel. Well, as I mentioned, the area of the clitoris that goes internal into the vagina on the internal wall, upper wall, like the wall of the stomach just above the pubic bone, that's where the backside of the clitoris goes into the vagina, and we call that the G-spot. And for some women, that's a very pleasurable area to have stimulated. For other women, it's just not, doesn't do much. As I said, for some women having direct clitoral stimulation, is really an important part of their arousal process. For other women, it's too intense. So that's that's just a... It's called the G-spot for a doctor, uh, was it Grafenberg? Yeah, right. A, a guy discovered the female G-spot. Sort of an I interesting... I guess that's true. Yeah, uh-huh. that is sort of an interesting sideline, isn't it? I mean, one would think that after all these hundreds of thousands of years, a woman would have figured that out rather than some guy. But without uh, laboring that point, Tell us about the, the Kegel and why the Kegel is worth doing. Well, the Kegel exercise is an exercise where you contract the vaginal opening. Uh, so it's, it's like it's, it's, um, the muscle you contract if you were stopping the flow of urine. And just strengthening that muscle is contracting it as well as releasing it. The releasing is as important as the contraction. So a lot of times people are just contracting, but actually you want to release it, you want to contract it, you want to release it, you want to contract it. And that, that um, for a lot of women, um, increases the sensation that occurs inside the vagina. They get a little more sensitive. Uh, it also helps to make contractions during orgasm more intense. And it is helpful in terms of urinary incontinence. So as women age, doing their Kegel exercises means they're going to be less likely to be kind of losing little drops of urine when they sneeze or they cough or they laugh. 
So it's a way of keeping the vaginal area healthy. So that would be true so for males true as well in terms well of later life incontinence. Life incontinence. It I, could be. Yeah. I know yeah. it about women. Yeah. Yeah. I've been told I've 15, been told seconds, 15 seconds, certain number of times number a day, of day is a good thing to do with the Kegel. You mean hold it for 15 no, seconds or no, contract it? No, no, just do a, a, a tighten, yeah. con let go, tighten, let go for a about 15 seconds. Don't make a big, long thing of it, but do it frequently and get, get right. sort of make it part of your routine. And nobody knows you're doing it. <laughs> nobody knows right you're doing now, it. Nobody has any <laughs> idea that this is going on. Yeah. Okay, masturbation, communicating with the other person, letting them know what you like. Mm -hmm. Your dear friend who passed away, I know, Bernie Zilbergeld, talked about, mm -hmm. Dr. Bernie Zilbergeld, talked about five stages of arousal. Do you find those, is that a, a handy thing for us to be aware of or, or not necessarily? You know, I really try to get away from analyzing it, to be honest with you, because then if uh -huh. you're spending your time saying, oh, am I leaving desire and entering arousal? Let me see. It's just not useful to the experience of enjoying pleasure. I mean, it's much more uh, useful, I think, to a couple and their sexual relationship to just see where they are and if they're going too fast to slow the partner down. It doesn't matter where you are in the arousal cycle and if you're enjoying the stimulation that you're getting to let your partner know to continue it rather than to change it if that's the stimulation that you want right then. So, I, I mean, I kind of don't really find the labeling useful. That's helpful. For what I yeah, that's, that's, no, that's helpful to know. As an aside here, do you researchers know what the function of the clitoris is? I mean, why, do, why does a woman have a clitoris? Other, to provide sexual pleasure. But there, there's sexual pleasure with penetration, with oral with sex. Oral I mean, sex. there's a lot, I mean, of a lot of sensitivity in that area. In that area. Is there a particular there a function, of, function of, is there a function of the function orgasm, of the orgasm for, females? for females? Pleasure. Pleasure, strictly. Well, it's, I, mean, I mean, the survival of the species depends upon sex. Wanting if to, it didn't wanting feel good, it oh. wouldn't be reinforced. We wouldn't want to do it very much, and we'd all die out as a species. Well, so animals, having it be pleasurable, you don't know if animals are really enjoying it or not enjoying it. No, we do know no, that do like know. dogs and cats dogs and so on don't seem to have a clitoris. Do they... they well, whatever they do have, they're enjoying it. There's something that's going on in their bodies and that their makes brains them to have both wanting to do it. Yes. So it may yes. not be a clitoris. I actually don't know a lot about animals. Yeah. That's not yeah. one of the areas that I spend much time studying. <laughs> but the, so, but, but the I do know that if you didn't enjoy it, you wouldn't keep doing it. So it's a positive reinforcement for reproductive purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. And we know that that uh, as you have an orgasm, you um, you oxy um, what is it? The oxytocin in your body is released, which is the kind of the feeling close hormone. And so you feel more connected to your partner. And the more connected you feel, the more likely you are to stay together. And then that will help raise the kids and do all sorts of things. So it's biologically, these things are built into us. When it comes to actual sexual activity, are there any, as so long as there's mutual consent, no coercion or persuasion, no people aren't drugging each other, they're sober and they're mm -hmm. in it together, mm -hmm. does anything go, does anything they want to do, is it okay, or are there things that people, there are no-nos that people shouldn't do? 
You know, my feeling is that as long as you both are really enjoying it and no one is getting hurt, that it's fine. Mm -hmm. I had one couple come in uh, to therapy with me and they had a really good sexual relationship. And what turned him on was her walking around in high heels while he was in a uh, chest. And inside of a chest? He was inside the chest with it closed. Closed. And she would be talking to him. Uh-huh. And then they would have sex and he'd be very aroused. It, they, She was fine with it. It really turned him on. And I said, you have no issue. I would just be very, very nice to her. <laughs> and, and he said, I am. You know, because it's finding somebody who's willing to have a sexual relationship, which is in that particular form, yes. that finds that fine with them as well. Was there something about hearing the clicking heels while he was in the box? Was that part of it? Because uh, he couldn't see the heels. No, it must have been, or he knew it, or he saw it when he came out. I, I didn't, you know, go into all the details of it because mostly I was concerned with did they have a problem or did they not have a problem? Yeah. Well, that's and if there was, where was it? Well, that's our next topic that we're segueing in. You've spent a lot of your career helping mm-hmm. people with problems. Mm-hmm. Tell us about unhappy, unhappy sexual relations. Unhappy sexual relations. Thank you. Right. Please t- tell us about you know sort of typical obstacles and problems that people have, and what kind of ways do you deal with it? Boy, uh, this is like a subject of a number of books of mine. Yes, it so, is. So <laughs> um, you know, we have all kinds of problems that couples face sexually. Uh, As I mentioned, they could have a a discrepancy in desire, where one partner comes into the relationship wanting sex three times a day, and the other one, for an extreme example, wants it once a week. So you have three times a day versus once a week. That's a hard difference to be able to find a place where they can both be pretty satisfied. You know, if it's if it's three times a week versus once or twice a week, you can find a place to make it work. But if it's very very far apart. One person ends up feeling unloved and undesirable because their partner's not interested in making love with them. The other person is feeling that there is something wrong with them uh, and that they, you know, they feel guilty and abnormal. And that leads to then even a larger difference as one person feels pursued and the other one feels rejected. But this is the kind of thing that people, this kind of thing, as we said earlier in the program, people can find out about early in the relationship before they get married. This isn't a, oh my gosh. Some people feel, well, after we get married, this will all change. Ah, yes. Yeah, maybe we'll feel free or something. And then it doesn't change. Yeah, and then it doesn't change. And then, so that difference becomes a problem. So that's one kind of sexual problem. Uh, The most common sexual problem that I see in couples, maybe because I like working with it the best, is a lack of desire, or what we call a lack of desire. Not a difference in desire, but where this couple really isn't having a sexual relationship. So um, neither one of them desires sex or one of them doesn't want to have sex. And then the issue is to figure out what is going on here. Sometimes it's something as simple as maybe the woman has gone through menopause and she is low on testosterone mm-hmm. and she really needs to have a change in hormones or is experiencing uh, pain with intercourse because she needs some estrogen in her vaginal area. So you have to, is that what's going on? Is what's going on, which is most commonly, that you have a relationship that has atrophied over the years. 
they haven't put the kind of time and energy into maintaining the intimate caring part of the relationship. Maybe they become a business partnership where they take care of the kids and they take care of the house, but they haven't really been paying attention to each other's uh, more emotional needs. And they get don't feel connected. And that lack of feeling connected leads to a lack of feeling sexual. Or they're feeling tired and exhausted and overworked. And it's hard to find time or to make time in their busy life to be able to be sexual. Or most commonly, um, let's say when uh, you have a, a partnership where one person is really angry at the other person, which means that they're, they're feeling hurt. And they're feeling hurt maybe because they feel unimportant, they feel unloved, they feel um, in some way powerless in the relationship. For Sometimes for women, not having sex is really powerful. You have a partner who can tell you to do everything that you know, he wants to do or she wants you to do, but the only power you have is in saying no. And so saying no to sex can not consciously, but be a way of some women having power in the relationship. So my job is to figure out what is the problem in the dynamic between the two people and how can we unravel it and start a different kind of relationship so that both people feel important, they feel cared about, they feel respected, and then when that starts to happen, then we can start bringing back a sexual relationship where they feel safe. For some people, if they don't feel safe in their relationship, they're not going to feel sexual. What about body what about images? Body? Uh, right now, right now yeah. 70% of the United States are obese or overweight. A lot of those folks of those must folks feel badly feel about badly themselves. About well, some of them do, but remember, some people feel just fine about themselves being overweight. I mean, okay. this is, okay. you're looking at, a, a, at it from sort of the culture is saying, this is the way you ought to look, and if you don't, and some people buy into that, and they feel bad about feel themselves. Feel bad about like, themselves. If I don't look this way, I, I, I'm not sexual, I'm not desirable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it's really about their partner, does their partner desire them? If their partner desires them, then I have to work with the person, let's say the woman, who's not feeling good about her body, so that she starts to feel better about the body that she has and all of the positive things that it does for her, as opposed to what the media is trying to tell her she ought to look like, which is only some small percentage of what actual women look like. Yes, a very small percentage. And very small percentage. So how we open this up so that all of us can actually feel good about our bodies um, and enjoy the pleasure that we have is part of the work. You know, if the partner isn't finding her attractive because of the changing body, then it becomes more complicated because uh, if the partner's not turned on, what can we do to have that partner feel turned on? You know, people, as people age, their bodies change. They don't stay in the same shape that they necessarily were in. And for some people, that's a problem. And for other people, you know, it's like they accept our bodies change. Things are different. And we can still, the fact that we can still enjoy them as we get older that we can enjoy the pleasure of them, even though they're changing, uh, can be a great gift. What about the, what about uh, the, uh, the place of religion? religion? Does, is religion still a problem for a lot of people in terms of enjoying their sexuality? Does religion put uh, a, a suppression or, or put such uh, rules out there that it makes it difficult? Yeah, sec uh, religion has been, a, has been a huge problem in the cause of sexual problems. It was, it was more so, um, I think, in the past, 
or at least it seemed to me, that there were more women who were uh, stuck on feeling that, you know, religion has told them that you can't be sexual, it's bad, it's wrong. They've spent years turning off their sexual desire, uh, putting a, you know, a clamp on it. And then one day, okay, so now you're married, and it's okay, you're in this relationship, and you can feel sexual now. But they didn't, because they learned too well how to turn it off. And when I did my first pre-orgasmic women's group, the I had, or groups, I had more women who were ex-Catholics than any religion. It was almost as if they had to give up being Catholic in order to be okay in terms of exploring their sexuality. And it wasn't until they could give up the religion that they could feel free enough to explore themselves. That's a heck of a so, conflict to be in. Yeah. No, it was for a lot of people. So I think so so when religion is repressive in terms of your sexuality, uh, and if it's important to you, you're in conflict and that can create difficulties in your sexual experience. I want to come back to, to come back to communication, communication. which mm-hmm. is so important to you and to all of us in our in our profession. And mm-hmm. Share with us some of the exercises that you suggest to couples to enhance their communication about sex, but about life in general, not just about sexuality. Yeah, I was going to say that um, it reminds me of a couple that I worked with today. You know, really what an intimate relationship is, is a lifelong conversation. And it's a conversation about feelings. That's what intimacy is. Otherwise, as I said before, you have a business partnership. You know, who's going to do the dishes and who's going to pick up the kids? So it's about the conversation. And how you have that conversation is really important. First of all, you have to be willing to be vulnerable, which means sharing feelings of what's going on. We've only been taught how not to show feelings, especially men. Men, right. Not to show feelings, to cover them up, to not show your hurt. Or if you are sh- are hurt, then you lash out and you're angry and you tell the person how bad and how wrong they are. So how to let a person know that you're hurt in a vulnerable way means that it also has to be safe for you to do that. And so the partner, if you want to be um, able to hear my vulnerable feelings, it means that you can't judge my feelings. You can't tell me that's a stupid way to feel. You can't deny my feelings or say that, oh, you don't really feel that way, you know, um, and you can't dismiss my feelings like really that's, you know, you can't do that because then it's not safe for me to come forward and share them with you. So I have to be safe to do that. So working with couples, my goal is to create safety so that they can really share their vulnerable feelings and be able to, you know, let the other person know what's going on with them so they can be close. Um, and also letting the person know how I'm feeling and not telling them how they're feeling, which I think is kind of a universal difficulty. People very uh, easily and regularly tell their partner, you felt this way, you were angry at me when you came home, you didn't like this, you did And what happens is they whenever... They tell the other person what they feel. Exactly. Yeah. Because in this case, my experience of you is such that and then I believe that what I'm seeing is the truth and that makes me become an expert on you I mean, that's what I've just done 
I've just become the expert on you. What you're going to do is you're going to resist that and get defensive and tell me I don't, and I'm probably wrong anyway, but regardless, you're not going to want me to be the expert on you. So if instead, and the other thing that that does is when I tell you what actually went on, my hearing it when I say it out loud confirms it in my mind in terms of believing it's true. But if I instead were to ask you, were you angry when you came home yesterday? Now, how did you feel when you said that? And what did you mean by that? I'm suddenly open to hearing what you have to say. You are back being the expert on yourself. And you've been invited to tell me about your vulnerable feelings. And it works like magic in a relationship. Help us here.